I'm Olivia. And I'm Emily. Welcome to Backstage with PYB. That's Pennsylvania Youth Ballet, a dance studio located in Bethlehem, PA. We are so glad you joined us for our interview today. We'll see you backstage. Hi everyone and welcome back. Since it's March, Women's History Month, we are so excited to share with you our interview with Diane Wittry and Karen Nur. Ms. Wittry is the musical director and conductor for the Allentown Symphony Orchestra. We spoke with her about her education and career as well as the upcoming Allentown Symphony performance of Mother Goose Suites and Bolero featuring dancers from PYB. Hi, good morning. Um, we're so excited to have you both here today. Um, we have uh, Diane Wittry and Karen Nur talking with us. So starting with a question for Miss Diane Wittry, at what age did you begin your music education? Well, you know, I grew up in a family where my mom really was involved with music. And so we all, there were five kids and four of us started playing violin. Uh, I was about seven years old and we started with Suzuki violin. And I was actually fortunate enough later on in my life when I was about 13, I was able to actually live in Japan for six months and was able to actually study with Dr. Suzuki. So that was kind of a, a very, very special thing in my life. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So would you say your like first love that got you into music was violin or was there some other instrument that you started playing that really drew you in? Well, we also sang in our church choir. So I think both singing regularly in a choir. And then when I was in, in high school, I sang in the chorus. And we also had a, a player piano in our in our family room. And we spent a lot of time actually around that player piano singing and playing. And I remember when I was young, the, the big thing was to get, you know, tall enough that you could actually reach the pedals to pedal the player piano. <laughs> the really big thing in our family. Now, did any of your siblings pursue careers in music? No, they didn't. They're, they're all sort of involved as amateur musicians. So my brother plays viola in a community orchestra. My sister actually sings in a praise band at her church. Um, another brother still sings a little bit. And my oldest brother played clarinet in the band in high school. He was old enough when my mom said, we're all going to learn violin. He said no. <laughs> 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 but he did play clarinet in the band and, and enjoyed that but hasn't really picked up the clarinet since <laughs> I just out of curiosity what was that like with Dr. Suzuki in Japan I did your parent go with you did a parent go with you for that uh, yeah, so, period of instruction yes uh, and that the Suzuki method is very much based upon the parent being in the room and learning along with the child and then also being the teacher on a daily basis at home. And we did not, we did not live in Matsumoto, which is where uh, his institute was. We lived in Osaka, but we made many, many trips to Matsumoto. And I remember very distinctly him teaching all of us, you know, we would sort of get in line for our lessons. And I actually found Recently, I found a signed painting uh, from Dr. Suzuki. I think he had these sort of made, but still it's very valuable and very, very special to me. Wow, that's, that's a very, such a cool experience. Um, is there anything that you specifically remember that you learned from him? You know, I think 
studying in Japan, I was 13, was really a turning point in my life. Before that, I played violin and I was I was pretty good and I was competitive, but I didn't really see myself going on as a violinist. And I think he had a way of instilling a confidence in you as, as a player that really when I came back from that experience, I actually started practicing, you know, every day a lot more than I'd been doing before. And it was really a turning point. Um, he was very influential in my life and and also a youth orchestra conductor, uh, Mr. Ohlendorf, who I worked with in junior high and went to his summer music camp was also a person very influential in, in sort of turning me on to music. So I think you can study music and have a love for music, but it's the teachers and the people you work with that instill that passion to to take it further and and to give the, you the confidence that you can take it further. Did you continue on with violin studies um, through the rest of high school into college? Yes. So I went to college as a violin major. And then while I was in college, one of the requirements was you had to take a conducting class. And I took that class and, and absolutely fell in love with conducting because it really combined all the things I enjoyed doing into one sort of job. So as a violinist, you're only playing one part, but, but I was often paying more attention to all of the other parts going on and not so much to my own part. I was fascinated by the whole. And I was also a person that I liked to organize things. I liked to sort of be in charge and to sort of move things forward. And conducting really, that, that's a skill set you actually need for conducting and, and is very, very useful. So, so at that point, I then began to take all the conducting courses that I was allowed to take as an undergrad and then was able to audition for the master's program and then haven't looked back since then. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, when did you start composing? So composing is a relatively new thing for me uh, within the last, say, 10 years. And I started composing originally because I wanted to attend a artist retreat in Italy that's right on the ocean and I needed a project. <laughs> and I I thought about composing, but I, I hadn't really composed anything. And it was sort of this whim where I said, well, you know, maybe I'd like to try composing. So I applied with this project that I can compose a piece and went there for two or three weeks and, and had a wonderful time and and, you know, looking over the ocean, composed my piece, and then came back and actually, you know, finished the piece and, and premiered it with the Allentown Symphony. And it was actually such a success that it got published immediately and has been played many times all over the world. And so then I wrote some more pieces after that. Wow. I mean, how amazing to get to premiere um, your own your own piece with your orchestra. Um, yes, yes, it's, it's, <laughs> It's, it's when you finish writing a piece, you kind of look back at it afterwards and you, you kind of think, where did that come from? I don't remember <laughs> how I did that. It's almost like you kind of feel like you're channeling something and, and at the end it's there, but you don't really know how it was created. It's, it's very odd. It's amazing. Miss Karen, do you feel that way with uh, choreographing pieces <laughs> of dance? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's definitely a process. And you know, I'm sure with compose, like with choreography, it, you can change levels, should we add a turn, should this repeat, should this retrograde, it, it, you know, so there's so many options um, 
you know, till you come up with a final product. Yeah, so I'm sure it's very similar. It's a very similar process. Um, how did you come to Symphony Hall and become the conductor of Symphony Hall? Music director. Music director. Yeah, well, and actually I'm both. I'm actually music director and conductor. And both of those titles actually are deal with the two different aspects of my job. Uh, one is a little bit more administrative and artistic leader, and then the other conductor is is physically standing in front of that orchestra and waving my arms. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Allentown Symphony did a national search, and they actually did a two-year national search and invited guest conductors from all over the country to come and each do a concert. And after the end of that two-year process, uh, then they made an offer to me to be the music director. Wow. So basically, you kind of had an audition. Yes, definitely had an audition. <laughs> Different than, say, a job interview. When you audition with an orchestra, it's like a week-long process because you have to be there for all the rehearsals. The, the rehearsals happen within a week time period, but you also get introduced to all the volunteers. There's a lot of of you know other activities they have you involved with so it's it's not like that you know 30 minute interview where you go in for a job it's it's very sort of strenuous <laughs> how did you know when you were at symphony hall that that place was for you you know i just felt that i had a, a really good relationship with the orchestra and that we were able to really worked together well. It was fun. It was inspirational. The orchestra was responsive. Um, so it just felt right. Yeah, I could, I could see that, how you would need to spend, you know, some time with the orchestra, both them getting to know you and you getting to know them, you know, to see if it would be a good working relationship for you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, and also we, we know that you're a music director and conductor for the Garden State Philharmonic um, in New Jersey. So I'm assuming that was a, a similar process. Yes, it was. And the same thing where we had the rehearsals, um, you know, you meet with the community, you know, with there, I remember driving around the community because I wasn't as familiar with that area, you know, so sort of assessing, you know, the area and whether, whether, you know, and it's a great area, you know, having a, a, an orchestra that plays at the Jersey Shore is a lot of fun because I get to go down to the shore <laughs> sure. for all the concerts. In fact, I'm going there this weekend for, we've got a concert in Spring Lake. How has that been for you? Um, I mean, this is such a, a, such a heavy workload. I mean, how has this been for you? I mean, I guess it's all very fulfilling work, you know, when you, when you do what you love, you're hardly working, right? Now, I feel very blessed because I've, I've been able to make a full-time living as a professional conductor my whole life, which, which is unusual. Um, and I think with conductors, you know, it's, it's very common to have multiple orchestras, mostly because we want to conduct as much as possible. We love to be doing concerts every week or every other week. But when you do that, it, it is a lot of work because it's a lot of times different repertoire. I usually... I'm doing, before COVID at least, I was usually doing about 20 to, you know, 30 concerts a year and usually about 15 or, or more different programs. So you're, you're sort of juggling these concerts and the preparation for each concert. 
But the thing that people don't understand is, is sometimes you've got, so say you have two orchestras, they have two different sets of concerts going on and all the administration that goes with that. But at the same time for each orchestra, you're planning the season after that. So in your oh, mind, yeah. you're actually planning four seasons, you're working with four seasons at the same time. So I might be conducting one concert, but I'm dealing with with hiring and logistics and programming for a concert that's a year and a half away. So sometimes you do sort of feel like a split personality. Wow, how do you handle all of that? Do you like I rely on my Google Calendar? Do you how do you organize all that information? I, I do have a Google Calendar. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's I have systems. I have special shelves that I had built that I have. I used to have every concert on the floor, you know, around the room, like piled. <laughs> and now I have a shelf that everything is labeled and it's all in order by date. And so everything for a specific concert goes on that shelf. The problem is when you're changing over, because usually I have enough room for, you know, one season on my shelves. And when you're changing over to the next season, you know, how I, those are just kind of stacked now because you have to pull all those scores to look at as you're programming. I might have to build more shelves. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would so love to see your shelves. I would so love to co color coordinate them. <laughs> well, um, and they and they you can you can change the they have movable shelf things in them. They're towers and they're built uh 12 inches by 18 inches which will fit any score. But that way if it's an opera concert where you have a lot thicker scores or, or say a holiday pops where you've got more music, I can make the section bigger. And if it's a concert that has fewer scores, I can make it smaller. And then I, I just label them each every year. <laughs> wow, that's so fancy. It's such an intricate system. This is something that I cannot imagine translating to a digital world very well, because you could, you could scan everything and get it in digital, but you'd never be able to see it. It would be so small. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and some people, you know, there are conductors that actually are using iPads and doing their score study on iPads. And there's something to be said for that, you know, because if you're traveling around the country and you need a lot of scores, that's, mm. they're very heavy. They take a lot of space. But I'm a paper person and, and I, I, I actually am visual where my mind remembers which side of the page it's on. And if mm -hmm. it's suddenly in a different place, that throws me off. So I don't think I would... I. I could ever switch to digital um, because I've just spent so much time with the physical paper. And, and so, you know, I can turn, you know, three quarters of the way in and know that I'm going to find that spot because it, it's a memory of where it is within that score, which you lose all that on digital. It's just a single page. You have no reference point. Right. I could see that. Yeah, I definitely feel that. This is so unrelated, but I definitely feel that with studying too. When you're studying and you're going through your notes and like, oh, I remember that I need to review this, but I know where it is, but not what the information was. But Miss Karen, Miss <laughs> <laughs> Karen, I heard you agreeing. Do you feel that? Um, well, obviously, dance is also very visual, but how is your process choreographing visually? I mean, I do, I, I, I do written notes for my choreography, definitely. Um, sometimes I draw pictures, especially if I'm looking at um, the spatial relationship and floor plan. Like, if anybody would look at my written notes, I have little <laughs> tiny X's and O's and, 
and <laughs> arrows and you know so then you know sometimes I even I'll put pennies down if I'm using a large group and I'm trying to figure out you know the the movement and the spatial relationship I'm moving pennies around on a floor before I get in the studio with the dancers <laughs> so when you put the pennies on the floor is it is it in a big space as they would be, or do you do it miniature, like on no. a desk? No, <laughs> miniature, miniature. But, you know, <laughs> just, just trying to figure out, you know, symmetry and and who can pass in front of who and how it works. And yep, that's sometimes that's the method to my madness. Um. I, I also wanted to ask a little bit about teaching experience. I know that you have taught in the past. Are you currently teaching? Um, is that something that you like to do? For me, yes, I do teach conducting. Um, I'm actually teaching a conducting workshop in the Czech Republic this summer and also one uh, in Whidbey Island outside, the, uh, outside of Seattle. And I do a lot of teaching. I've, I've written two books which have been uh, become sort of standard in the conducting field, particularly my first book, Beyond the Baton, which is about artistic leadership for conductors, really their their job off the podium uh, with a regional orchestra. So that book is actually sold all over the world. And so I do a lot of teaching around that book. Um, yeah, so, so I'm well known as a teacher, <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> um. What are some of your favorite pieces to conduct or perform? And are there any performances that really stand out to you? Well, you know, a performance, Karen and I were talking, you know, a while back, a performance that really stands out in my mind that we didn't get a recording of was when we did the Petrushka. Yep. Together. Uh, I mean, that was, that was an amazing, you know, concert and performance. I just thought everything about that was really, really special. Well, and, and I'll, I'll tag on to that. Um, I remember a performance with Appalachian Spring. Um, there's something about the ending. You heard an audible gasp from the audience. And uh, I actually remember uh, Diane coming off stage. You know, we were all so thrilled with that audience reaction at the end. And Diane having to say, wait, we have another piece. She had to <laughs> regroup herself and go back out to conduct it, the last piece on the program. Um, but that one stood out for me, um, our performance with the Allentown Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, that was very, very <laughs> special, too. And that was I think we had two sold out houses. So we had, you know, over a thousand people in each performance. And that was, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. And that one we did get on video. So we have that one forever. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, can you speak about some of the other collaborations with Pennsylvania Youth Ballet, either of you? I think we did a Peter and the Wolf uh, family concert. Um, yes, Peter and the Wolf. Ago, but that was, that was another great collaboration. Yep, Peter and the Wolf, um, Petrushka. I know we did the Dance Macabre, um, okay. and Sorcerer's Apprentice. The I oh, remember yes. Sorcerer's Apprentice, the magic concert I did. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> I think during rehearsal for Dance Macabre, we actually we have a fire escape door that we open when when the weather's warm and we did actually have a bat fly in during the <laughs> <rehearsal for laughs> macabre. it just wow. seemed very, very fitting during that rehearsal <laughs> that's great that's great and diane i'm always curious what goes into your programming because i think each program is is diverse and yet um 
ha- always has this kind of a common thread to connect the pieces. And I, I can't imagine what goes into that programming that you do. Yeah, I, I love programming and, and I, it's a challenge. It's like a puzzle to me because not only do I have the challenge of, of finding the right pieces, the right flavors, the right timings, the right moods to put together, but I also have to make it work within the budget. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so that, that puzzle of, you know, what concert can be a little bit smaller one year so I can have, you know, enough money to do a bigger concert. How am I going to work the rehearsal schedule? Can I reduce rehearsals a little bit on one to give more for another? What guest artists do I need to bring in? How is how are they going to work with my overall theme? How do the, the pieces balance over the course of the season? And how do they balance over the course of, say, five years? Because I have, I would say, 40 to 50% of my audience is repeating people that come every concert every year. And so I can't really repeat a piece for maybe 10 years. And and so looking at, yeah, because I want to make sure we're bringing new and different things and not just doing the same old, same old. So for me, it's it's a great challenge, but I think that's why we've come up with some of these original things like, you know, the Maurice Ravel Mother Goose Ballet. You know, this is not a piece that's done very often. This is going to be our collaborative piece. And I've never done it. It's never been done in Allentown that I know of. Most of the time when people do this work, they do the, the five movements, the five pieces, which is just the main pieces. So that they don't do the full ballet. And we've done a few movements for children's concerts and things throughout you know, my time here. But I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do this as an entire ballet? And you know, Karen is so great with her choreography to do original choreography and costumes and just bring people something that they can't find anywhere else. <laughs> wow, you must have such an extensive like library of musical knowledge to be able to just pull pieces that you haven't played in like 10 years. Do you remember the last time you played Bolero? Uh, Bolero was probably, we probably did it on a children's concert. Uh, maybe it was before COVID, probably five or six probably seven or eight years ago but and I will say that I I just I've been working on this for 10 years I finally got permission to publish my my arrangement of Bolero which we have played here and we had permission to play it but Bolero is you know it's probably Ravel's most famous piece the the largest sort of income producing piece and I have a version that's that's actually an introduction to the, the instruments of the orchestra. So it's it's designed for children's concerts. It's a smaller instrumentation and much shorter. It's about seven or eight minutes. And yeah, so just literally yesterday I signed the contract for that. So I'll be able to sell that and people will be able to, to utilize that version when they want something with a smaller instrumentation, maybe they're on a tighter budget and they want something a little bit shorter. That's awesome. But we will be doing the full original one with the dancers. Could both of you speak a little bit about collaborating with other artists? Sure. I mean, I, I know when Diane and I work together, um, you know, she's she's set the program and, and she has some ideas. And I always always like the ideas she has and where she wants these pieces to go and and her overall vision. But one of the biggest steps we do together is we sit and we will listen to the music together. 
obviously she has the musical knowledge um and and she really educates me um and helps me digest the the music um and that is super helpful before i get into the studio with the dancers um so that's always the 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 initial start i know with with how we work together yeah and then karen is so great that you know i know that if i kind of say okay i'm thinking this she'll be able to take my very vague thought which is in my mind and not even very well communicated but she'll be able to take that and then create this amazing you know choreography that just is perfect for it so and i know i'll speak right now bolero is for me is such a challenge um because it's a very long piece it does feel repetitive um really uh <laughs> Eight, I, oh, I have it broken down 18 times, um, but I really like where it's going. The poor dancers are true guinea pigs in the studio as we're working. Um, Olivia, you know the process. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I want it to, to, you know, it builds musically, obviously, right. but I want it to build visually as well. So we have almost 23 dancers that will end up you know, in front of the audience, as well as, you know, as that music builds. Um, and I, I love where it's going. And I think it's going to be spectacular. But it has certainly been a challenge because the music is so well known. Exactly. I, and if you're watching the ice skating at the Olympics, there were many, many people that used <laughs> sections from Bolero in their ice skating. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very popular. And, and because the piece if you've, if you've heard it once, it's got the A section and the B section. Once you've heard both the A theme and the B theme, that's all the piece. <laughs> Just repeat yep. those. And, and so everything is in the build. Everything is in the crescendo from, you know, starting very, very softly to getting more and more and more and more and more towards the end. And, and I think that by adding the dancers and building that way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it even more impactful for the audience. Um, because it's going to build in, in multiple ways, not just in volume. Yeah, it definitely builds visually. And just sort of an uh, audience teaser for this program. I mean, we are using every available space that we can in the hall, including the boxes. So it's really oh. going to be dynamic <clears throat> at the end. And the aisles. Yes, and yep. the aisles. <laughs> yep. Wow. I'm excited to get to see it. I will say one thing that has stood out to me because the ballets that we do like Nutcracker and the spring shows they're very they're already set sort of like Mother Goose was where it's like well this is the order of the people that come out and this is this person's music and this is this person's theme but Bolero as a dancer looking at it it was more daunting because I was thinking I have no idea what you're gonna do with us <laughs> for 15 minutes and then um it's just it's all coming from your brain so um, as, a, <laughs> as a dancer, it's just interesting. I feel like the girls in the studio and I have a close enough relationship with you that we kind of understand where your brain goes. But this one has been totally different. Just 15 <laughs> minutes of, of, oh, well, what about this? What about this? Well, what if we do this? And what if we go on our knees? Or what if we stand up? <laughs> I don't know. I think that really must be, I, I really appreciate the challenge of a, such a well-known and somewhat repetitive, you know, piece, like as far as the music um, of creating something that, that seems fresh and innovative to the audience, you know, 
um, I really do appreciate the challenge with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been it's been a challenge, but just because I know I want that final product to be so uh, I don't know spectacular at the end to yeah. match the music. I mean, the music is so spectacular, so I want I want the dance to match that. Yeah, and I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Any different topic, but um, we do like to ask everyone about um, dealing with rejection. I don't know if if Diane, if you could speak about any any sort of hardship you uh, experience, yeah, experiences you've had with rejection. Yeah, well, as a conductor, we get rejected all the time. <laughs> you have to just have a very very thick skin, and I always. You know, when I'm teaching, you know, young conductors, I'm always saying, you know, I could probably wallpaper a room with all the rejection letters I've gotten over the years from different jobs and different things. You know, it's just, it's a part of, of, of life. And, you know, what I always tell people is, you know, if you're, if you're feeling down and, and you're feeling that you're discouraged because you haven't gotten anything, I, I that you have to double your rate of failure you know, that you have to actually apply for more things and get turned down for more things <laughs> because the law of averages eventually comes in and the more things you apply for at some point, something's going to work out. So, you know, it's, it's not giving up. It's, it's the people that make it in the arts. They have to have grit. They have to have perseverance and they have to understand that it's sort of like building a brick wall. You know, you look at this huge brick wall and it's pretty daunting, but the brick wall is built one brick at a time. And so if every day you place one or two bricks on your wall, you do one or two things that move you forward in becoming a better musician or becoming a better dancer, that is all going to build. But if you spend your days being depressed that you're not successful and you don't put any bricks on that wall, the wall will never get built. And so it's not about talent. It's about perseverance and grit and just believing in yourself. You have to believe in yourself because that's all there is. And, and investing in yourself and doing the hard work every single day. That's the only way you get there. Oh, I think that's really good advice. I like the wall <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> it really applies to so many things in life. Just everything, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's going to be rejected from things in your life. Life is not always this, this positive path. But just keeping a positive spirit yourself. And, and I also think being a good colleague and friend to people. You know, you choose how you relate to people. And I think if you if you keep on that positive side of life, you know, people like to work with people that they like. They like to work with people that are mm -hmm. players. And that's going to get you further than being that sort of uh, depressed person or a person that's discouraged or bitter. It's true. Um, we, we had on the list, but kind of skipped over it. Did you ever study dance? Just curious. I did not. <laughs> I love to <laughs> dance, but I, I did not study dance at all. Um, I guess, yeah, we, it just wasn't anything. And I didn't actually go to any ballet or anything when I was a child. But I love the intersection of music and dance. I, I think it's fascinating. And 
particularly some of these composers like Stravinsky and, and these composers that lived sort of at the turn of the, of the, the last century that created all these amazing ballets and the music is just, you know, incredible. I, I love that intersection. Um, this is kind of a side note, but I'm in violin Suzuki right now also. Ah. And um, I definitely feel like my violin training and ballet training complement each other, just like you said. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's because ballet is to me so closely related to feeling the music, being in the music, and and so I can see where then when you, if you're playing, you're it's the same thing. You're playing the music, you're in the music, you're absorbing it. Yep. And I encourage all my dancers to study an instrument. I mean, I think yep, they complement each other. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can definitely. Yeah. I think you can see when a dancer has musical knowledge because they can feel the music more deeply if that makes any sense <laughs> sure sure and and also i can tell when i work with dancers whether they have any musical background because they're not just counting you know it's one thing to to learn choreography just by counting but the people mm -hmm. that have the musical background more quickly understand how the music relates and they don't rely as much on the counting as they hear the music, they know the phrase, they, they understand where it's going. Miss Karen, do you have a musical background? Because you very much do that so many times in the studio. I don't really know what the count is, but you can hear it in the music. So, and then you'll like try and count it out for us. So the people who need to count it can. But yeah, you you know, I tend to teach without counts. I'm more like, and yeah, da 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 da. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I don't teach with counts. Um, We had a, an organ in our living room as a growing up so I could plunk out simple things on the organ um I never uh, I did study flute but for a little bit in elementary school but kids would always forget their instruments and then we'd have to repeat the same lesson over and over and <laughs> <laughs> so I got bored with that it's funny because ballet obviously your training in ballet is very repetitious but um I didn't gravitate to the repetition studying an instrument. Um, so I had limited knowledge, you know, growing up, but I, I had definitely had exposure. Yeah, I find that interesting. And I definitely, I feel like my, because uh, I am like you, I don't really go with the counts. And then I feel bad if someone's like asking me to clarify the counts. And I'm like, I really don't know. <laughs> like you just hear it in the music, especially um, one piece that picked, sticks out to me in particular is snow because it's very in the music especially with the chorus and all of the dynamics for a final question we kind of like to ask everyone knowing what you know now if you could give any advice to your younger self what advice would you give <laughs> I think well I know I've already answered this so Diane you can take this one okay <laughs> um advice to younger I think a couple things, you know, I think I would have taken more time to do things outside of music. I think, I think often when we're young, we're, we're so busy, we're so focused in, you know, achieving our goals and our very specific discipline that we forget that in order to bring anything to that discipline, you mm -hmm. have to experience the world. 
And I was lucky enough when I was 27, actually, I did go to Europe for like two months and just traveled around. And, and that was amazing for me because it opened up my eyes to so many things that I really just didn't know about the world and to actually be in different countries, talking to different people. And so I, I would I would say to not be in such a hurry to grow up. <laughs> I hate to say that because you know we all parents want their kids to be responsible and grow up but but I think to to take the time to experience the world even more and and sometimes I wish I would have stayed in school longer even though I finished a masters and everything and did advanced study later on in Russia I immediately went out and got conducting jobs which was great that I was able to do that but but conducting has such it's the knowledge you need is so amazing that you can't possibly learn it in two years of grad school. I kind of wish, as opposed to jumping right into a full-time job, I would have spent more time so I could learn more music and, and once again, travel more, learn more languages. Yeah, to do that, to do that while you're young, while you can. That would probably be my advice. That's very good advice, and I will take that advice as a <laughs> younger. You can take a year to travel the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, in the old days, you know, Mendelssohn and all of those people, that the ones that came from wealthy families, they all did that. They had their grand world tour for about a year when they came of age, and that was part of the process of sort of growing up. Wow. That'd be so cool if that was like <laughs> the normal <laughs> process is you get to go travel. I'd sign me up. Now, now I think it's like a gap year or something. I don't know. I think we have a very less uh, exciting name for it. Right, right. <laughs> but it, it does. Tour. <laughs> yeah, a gap year will do that. That's exactly right. It's just having that time before you rush from school into that full-time job and responsibilities to, to just explore a little bit and to explore expand your mind so that when you do come back to your job or those responsibilities, you're seeing it from a much broader perspective. That's really great advice. Well, thank you both for coming to speak with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. We enjoyed very much um, getting to talk to you both. And I hope everybody will come to our concert, which is on March 12th and 13th on the 12th it's Saturday at 7 30 and on the 13th it's Sunday at two o'clock at Miller Symphony Hall in downtown Allentown yes perfect we are very much looking forward to it and I hope all of our listeners can make it We're so glad you could join us today backstage at PYB. Please follow our podcast so that you never miss an episode. If you'd like more information on PYB, check out our website at bglv.org or friend us on Facebook at Ballet Guild of the Lehigh Valley slash Pennsylvania Youth Ballet or follow us on Instagram at PYB underscore BGLV. If you have any questions, please email them to karen.ner at bglv.org, and you might be featured on the show. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next time! time.